Beltway from Beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by immigration attorney Kelly Fennell, cybersecurity attorney Josh Cantro, public affairs consultant David Cohen, and Chicago Alderman Raymond Lopez. Our program tonight coming to you from the, uh, the sunny climes of Chicago, Illinois, where it is uh, very, very cold and starting to uh, snow heavily in the city of Chicago. But nice to have you with us. Hope you're uh, warm and toasty. And again, uh, a special uh, a greeting goes out to all of our listeners and viewers in the great state of Texas. I know this time has been a very difficult one for you with uh, uh, heat and and water and so uh, and electricity. So some of you may not be able to even hear us or see us tonight. But again, uh, anyone from the great state of Texas that would like to call in and share your thoughts on on what's happening in your state and uh, if there's anybody that you want to blame for what's happening there, we'd be interested in that that conversation as well uh, throughout the broadcast. Uh, I want to begin, however, with uh, Raymond Lopez, who's one of our guests this evening. He is uh, uh, one of the leaders of the Hispanic Bloc in the Chicago City Council. Uh, he is also the alderman of the 15th Ward, which is a, a black and, and brown ward. And my question to you, uh, Ray, is that this past week uh, in a CNN town meeting, the president, Joe Biden, suggested that maybe uh, maybe blacks and browns uh, didn't quite know how to use the Internet to get on to find uh, their nearest Walgreens to get a COVID shot. Uh, were you surprised by that statement? And is there any truth to it? Well, good evening, Bruce, Bruce and good evening to all the panelists and our listeners. You know, I think the problem that the president was trying to convey mm-hmm. was that we have an issue of bandwidth bandwidth and accessibility in many neighborhoods, particularly African-American and Latino neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. That makes it difficult for many in those communities to access all of the online forms, regardless what they are for. But in this case, you know, COVID-19 and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Right. And that is a problem that we see in our city here in Chicago and through many large urban areas uh, throughout this country. Uh, but I think, you know, just saying that, you know, that we are somehow technologically inept at getting onto a Walgreens website, um, you know, it wasn't exactly the message that he was trying to convey. It wasn't the message that he was trying to convey, but as someone that works uh, with with brown, uh, brown and, and, and black populations in your ward, uh, how are they doing with with uh, a digital uh, uh, literacy? Is it again? I don't. I don't mean to be pejorative or figure out whether they can do it or not. I mean, there was a lot of reaction suggesting that the president was suggesting that black and brown people didn't have the intellect to know how the internet works. But again, in reality, you say there's some bandwidth issues, but are there some, uh, what's the learning scale there? Well, I, I don't think as any of our youth will show you as they get onto TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and all the other social media platforms, they have plenty of capability in knowing how to get onto the internet and access things online. The question is whether or not their families, their parents, their grandparents in particular uh-huh. have access to the internet. And we know that's not always the case. We see that in many of our schools that went mm-hmm. to remote learning only to find out that devices that required internet did not work in homes that did not have internet capabilities. And I think that's the larger question here. Kelly Fennell, one of the reasons that I invited you because you've been a guest on this program before you're an immigration attorney 
the administration has announced that they want to turn back the clock and change things from the Trump administration. And I'm wondering, based on what has been discussed thus far, and nothing has been nothing has been signed, sealed, or delivered yet, uh, based on what you've heard in the papers, do you think the Biden administration has gone uh, far enough? I, I, I know you were not pleased with the Trump administration. Have they gone far enough in uh, cleaning up uh, the Trump Act? So they are taking positive steps forward, but you have to, before we even dive into that, go into what was done by policy or executive order and what was done through formal rulemaking. Mm -hmm. So an executive order or policy, that can be undone with a stroke of a pen, right? But if you're talking about formal rulemaking, that's a little more complicated to undo. So there was a comprehensive immigration reform bill that was introduced into both the Senate and the House. Um, Not optimistic that that's going to make it through. Um, But I think they're doing what they can. I know there are a lot of people on the more progressive end that are disappointed. Um, Likewise, a lot of people on the more conservative end that are disappointed, but they are taking steps to figure it out. And one thing that I will applaud them for um, is that they are actually reviewing and analyzing and seeking insight instead of just rushing to conclusions. Um, What is the what is the one or two elements within this uh, broad immigration package that you've read about that you think is right on target that would get uh, conservative or Republican uh, buy-in on it? Well, one thing that I hope um, would get bipartisan support that I quite frankly think should have passed by now is the DREAM Act. Um, There's no reason that that hasn't gone through. So there is a path to permanent residence. And that was, that was also, well, to be fair, was introduced one in the Biden bill, but then also in a separate bill introduced by Senator Durbin and Senator Graham mm-hmm. um, as a standalone bill offering a path to permanent residence for the dreamers. And how many, think, how many dreamers are there in the United States and how many of them have actually signed up to participate in, in dreamer legislation? So that I'm actually Googling that right now. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't have the exact number as of right now. Okay, so. While you're looking that up, I want to bring uh, David Cohen into the conversation. David, nice to have you with us. Public affairs associate, uh, a, a Republican, but not not a Trump Republican, as we'll find out as the program unfolds this evening. But again, how important, uh, as you look at the uh, putting the Republican Party back together again, where would you put immigration and some of the president, President Trump's immigration policies? Where would you put that on a scale of issues that uh, either rile up uh, some traditional Republicans or really are the, the red flag of support for Trump Republicans? Is that going to be an issue that the Republican Party can agree on in some way? Well, that's an excellent question, Bruce. And by the way, thanks for uh, inviting me to be part of tonight's discussion. Greetings to all the panelists and everyone tuning in to Beyond the Beltway. I think the answer to to your question depends upon what the Republican Party looks like uh, when it's reconstituted or as it's reconstituted during the immigration debate. And that's because, for example, uh, on the general issue of immigration, there are some sectors of the Republican Party, and I guess you would include in that the Trump base that are incredibly worried about uh, illegal immigration and have been for a long time. Then there's the business sector of the Republican Party that wants reasonable immigration policies that will help uh, commerce to occur in the United States and who are pro-trade. 
Um, so those are not all, those are sometimes working at cross purposes. Right. The other thing to remind ourselves of is that there are many Republican incumbents, in, particularly in the South, um, who have significant and growing bases of Latino voters. And although the Latino vote is not monolithic, it's more complex than just the Latino vote, those people are going to be a major factor in how those House members approach this. So I'm not sure that all the House Republicans would be necessarily on board with Steve Scalise, is what I'm trying to say. Okay. When we come back, uh, we have not yet heard from uh, Josh Cantrell. He's got the uh, subjects or comments to make not only on this, but on a variety of other issues. 1-800-723-82 is the number. 1-800-723-8289, to be exact. 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it. Seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. Your tween made you see. We are the boy. It's painful concert number three. We are the boy band. We're five and nineteen. We are the boy band. Always singing on key. You love your kids enough to take them to see their favorite uh, band. Love them enough to make sure they're buckled up in the back seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit nhtsa.gov/the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Boeing. Thanks for joining us, 1-800-723-8289. We've not heard from Josh Cantro. Uh, Josh is also a, a card-carrying Republican. Josh, uh, uh, nice to welcome to the program. And uh, I want to get your reaction to my question about how can we bring the wings of the Republican Party together to agree on a controversial issue like illegal immigration, which I think may be one of the issues that tears that uh, coalition apart. Bruce, thanks for having me on the show again. Good. And I agree with you. I I don't see really how the Republican Party comes together on immigration. To me, Dave David outlined it very well. You've got the business wing and then you've got the more um, Trumpian wing of, of the party. And then you've got people like me in the middle of those two wings who who I'm very concerned about immigration. I think that people should have to, um, there should be an orderly process um, and that we should protect our borders, but I am pro-immigration, but I'm pro-legal immigration. So how you bring those wings together, I think is incredibly tricky. Ray, I want to go back to you because you are, you're a Democratic ward committeeman and my, and, and again, represent a black and brown ward. Um, how big of an issue is this Ill- illegal immigration in in the constituents that you represent? Do they talk about it a lot? Are they fearful of it? Uh, do they offer any thoughts on, do they separate the dreamers from the non-dreamers? I mean, what's the general conversation that goes on in the 15th Ward in Chicago? I think not just in my ward, but in the Latino community, particularly the immigrant community, as a mm-hmm. Latino community as a whole, you know, they want to see some sort of progress. And I think to everyone's point about, you know, how do you create that pathway to citizenship, I think is 
got to be the goal for everybody. Nobody wants to be here living in fear and many undocumented individuals are hoping that this gets resolved. Um, I think they were hoping that it got resolved during the Obama administration, but as we saw, that was eight years of nothing in terms of tackling this issue in a solid way that actually would give them a path moving forward. The DREAM Act does help those young individuals, many of whom have known no other country other than the United States, have a pathway and give some certitude to them for being here. But I do wanna say one thing though, Bruce, is that I think there are some common ground areas that Republicans can find in this bill that we've discussed on this show many of times. You know, I think cracking down on some of the criminality that exists uh, out there, using immigration to try and infiltrate our country is mentioned in the president's bill. I think that's something that Republicans can agree on. Mm -hmm. Strengthening the border is again in there as well, as well as something that we've always talked about, which is employment, employee verification, another big deal for the Republican Party and its members. And I think if we start focusing on the parts that they can agree with, with the Democratic caucus, that will help move and break this in, this um, in, in lack of inertia, mm -hmm. the stagnant the stagnant nature that we've seen in Congress over 20 years. We've got to start somewhere. And if we could at least get E-verifying some of these other things that the Biden administration is proposing with some Republican support, we may just have a chance of finally e, tackling this issue. But E-verify, that's, that's what those uh, Republican and Democratic uh, business interests, that's what they stand up and holler about, Dave, isn't it? If, if it's got to be, uh, is, is that one of the biggest things that uh, maybe keeps uh, a final resolution is because the business community is standing fast on that? They don't want to have to do that work? No, I, I think what we need to do is take a step back and, 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 and ask that question in a little bit different way is how, as was Josh suggested, how are, we, how are we going to bring together in any meaningful way Republican coalition to work in a bipartisan way? We're about to see the first major test of how well President Biden can work with the Congress, because one of the things that he talked about during his campaign was the fact, and observers talked about the fact that here you have a former senator who understands the process very well, who has a working relationship with Mitch McConnell. There's widespread consensus about helping the dreamers. And uh, mm -hmm. Kelly had mentioned the DREAM Act. I think that you start with that as a base of bipartisan consensus and you build from there. So that's, that's the task before this president. He's gonna have to get his hands dirty and get into the nitty gritty. And it's gonna, it's gonna, we're gonna see, it's also gonna be interesting to see how Mitch McConnell responds to the more Trumpian wing of the party, which he has basically denounced at this point. Right. But um, because it's, still a, it's about, still a factor. It's yeah. a huge factor in the Senate Republican conference. To talk about the Dreamers, I want to go back to Kelly now, because I want, I, I'm, I'm trying to nail down what that number is, because there, there, is, there is the complete population of Dreamers, but not all Dreamers have signed up and identified themselves as Dreamers. Is that right. true? So I'm seeing around 700,000, give or take, as the ballpark figure for how many, those. How many could have signed up? So that's not exactly not clear. I mean, in any speculation, so there could be as many as 826,000 or more um, that could be eligible, which include those 700,000. But again, you know, if, if they're not submitting applications, anything is based on speculation, right? Because a lot of these people... Um, these children were brought in by their parents when they were very young. So there's no exact verifiable way to count that, right? 
Um, is but, the, is the reason, you know, but is, going is the, back go to ahead. the DREAM Act, okay. I think immigration, unfortunately, has become such a politicized issue. Um, Senator Durbin, for example, has been introducing the DREAM Act into Congress every year since 2001. Um, and it still hasn't passed. And it's because you see this fight between the more conservative wing of the Republican committee that raises stink about giving these people a pathway to permanent residence. Um, so I don't know that any president, let alone the Biden administration, is going to be able to break the rift that we have going on right now. Because what I see, unfortunately, on especially the issues such as immigration, is no one's willing to actually sit down and focus on the facts and get things done. It's constantly demonizing, name-calling, sensationalizing, and quite frankly, making up facts that aren't true about bills. Like, for example, look at the 100-day moratorium um, that the Biden administration wanted to put into place to review enforcement priorities. Everyone on the far, far, far right said, oh my gosh, she's going to stop deporting everyone. So criminals, gang members, they're going to get to say, or no, that's blatantly not true. People with aggravated felonies weren't exempt. Risks to national people who are risk to national security weren't part of that moratorium. So until people stop politicizing this and actually focus on the facts and getting things done, I don't think that's the Biden administration's fault. Bruce, if I could address Kelly's comment br briefly. Josh. Um, th there's a lot that I would disagree with what Kelly just said, but one thing that she said is absolutely true, that this has been going on since 2001. And in her earlier comments, she mentioned that as, you know, what's been happening is ex immigration has been set by executive orders and rulemaking. And that's the problem, mm -hmm. not just with immigration, but with so many things. We need to figure out a way for the, the Congress to come together. It's not just the Republicans. There are elements in the Democratic Party that are not all that uh, uh, in, in favor of some of these immigration reforms either. We, we have to figure out a way. And it seems to me that this president, given that he was in the Senate for so long, he should be, he should be well positioned to do that. And I'm hopeful he can do it because this this rule by executive order and the Republicans are guilty of it and the Democrats are guilty of it. I'm not casting partisan blame there. It's I mean, got to stop. But the president the, trusted do, do that more a, than any do, other president. Okay, was, I, I think Obama did a lot of executive orders. He did, well, but, but not but to the Bruce, extent that Trump did in the world of immigration. And, and I can't speak anything outside of immigration. I'm not gonna, I, I also think it's, I it's important to it's important to point out that that you know Kelly mentioned that, that you know the Dream Act, although if it were brought to the floor as a standalone measure, would have enough votes. It to has pass. been every year since 2000. Right. But the reason that that kind of legislation doesn't come to the floor is because everyone understands that this is the one shot you get at an immigration bill. And so whatever is of concern to Democrats and Republicans has got to be meaningful addre meaningfully addressed in the political process. That's where President Biden is going to have to reach out to and recognize some of the Republican uh, issues that are unresolved in the Democratic proposal. For example, the president's proposal, uh, Senator Menendez's proposal, does not meaningfully increase uh, resources for border security. And for a large section of the Republican conference, that's a big issue. You've got to give the Republican House members and, and senators something that they can go home to their constituents but didn't and say, you look, give, Dave, you didn't, know, didn't you give them, didn't you give, or didn't Trump and, and the Congress during Trump's administration, didn't they give them enough money to build a wall? Not the complete wall. 
But th- that was that was that's what they got. They well, already they, they already got, got that, a piece that, of what they wanted. They they got the money well, to build a wall. It's not completed, but I mean that was part of uh, of of what they wanted. And and I my my point would be they've got that. And if I if I'm a Hispanic or I'm a dreamer right now, I would say, wait a minute. I read in the papers the House is controlled by the Democrats. The Senate, because of the vice president, is controlled by the Democrats. We have a Democratic president. Shut up and quit talking about this issue. Get it done. Right. Forget bipartisan. Well, uh, make it a Democratic one, bill. The one thing everyone's noticing, though, is to get this immigration bill through, you're going to need 10 Republicans to join forces with the Democrats to get it through. Right. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't well, see that happening either. Exactly. A simple majority is not going to push this bill through. Okay. All right. So it's more than a super uh, regular majority. That's well, the that, filibuster. That's, well, because of the filibuster. Because of well, the that, filibuster. That's correct. Okay. Um, and you and don't that's, think that's you, the you don't thing. think there's you don't think there's ten Republican votes that would pass that would go for that? Does anybody on the on the panel think that there's ten Republicans that might uh, go for that? That might no. go for one. That, for, not that for, for one. one. That, that, that might try to do a, almost a, you know a, a a Democratic only bill. Where obviously, you'd have ten Republicans. But again, uh, basically, to uh, just to deal with the dreamer issue, just to give them, just to give that that small number, a relatively small number, a path to citizenship. I mean, they've been very careful having a balanced co-sponsorship on both sides, Republican and Democrat, when they've introduced the Dream Act as a singular bill every year since 2001. Right. And I want to come back and talk done. about it. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly. Don't go away. Opinions are everywhere when you watch the news. But what about your opinion? Why can't you just get the facts to decide for yourself? News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, a nightly newscast in primetime that doesn't tell you what to think. Seven nights a week, News Nation will deliver you news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. It's your news, your nation. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me. But I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. We're back at Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us this evening. And uh, let us uh, go around the clock here, and let's find each of our guests uh, some moments to share a little bit about their background. And we're going to begin with Raymond Lopez. Ray, go ahead. You're in a different. You're in a different square now. You're you're switching squares as I'm watching you on uh, Facebook. All right. <laughs> and hopefully, uh, hopefully, Connor's going to fix that. I guess I'm you, at the two o'clock point right you now. You don't. You don't look like Dave. You don't look like Dave Cohen to me. But go ahead. Um, well, I'm Raymond Lopez. I'm Alderman of Chicago's 15th Ward. It's on the southwest side of the city, representing a uh, high amount of African American, Latinos, immigrants um, from every part of the world. I've uh, been elected since 2015. Um, and, you know, following this conversation about immigration, you know, my great grandfather came here uh, as undocumented, uh, brought three, his wife and three of their children here nearly over 100 years ago. So it's interesting to see how this conversation continues uh, and what we're going to do about it. So thank you. Did he ever become legal? 
Oh yeah. He, okay. um, his entire family became uh, citizens. Uh, my grandfather actually uh, was born here. His wife was pregnant en route here. Uh -huh. um, and as luck would have it, uh, first tried settling in one of the neighborhoods I represent in West Englewood and ultimately uh, found work in a home in uh, right off the stockyards, the historic stockyards in the back of the yards neighborhood, which I also represent. So it's kind of cool that I get to represent the neighborhoods where my family tried yeah. to put up uh, roots. Um, but, you know, this, the, this the discussion about immigration and what drives people here and what they do when they get here uh, is intimate to me for all the obvious reasons. Ray, based on all the people that you know and you've spoken with throughout your political career, how many people uh, who have come from primarily Mexico, in your case, uh, how many want to become citizens of the United States? Oh, everyone comes here. I'd say 95% of everyone who's, I know who's made the trip here, uh, whether it's from Mexico or Poland, because uh, I'm actually both Mexican and Polish in my, in my case, mm -hmm. um, you know, they want to be citizens. They believe in this country. It's what brings them here, causes them to leave their homeland to be here. Um, but things don't always work out in the fairy tale way that we think that they should. Um, and I think that's why we're here in this heavy now. And, and to the dreamers who have not signed up, that we don't know that magic number, why don't they sign up in your view? Well, I think they were signing up under uh, the, uh, President Obama's administration. I don't think there was a fear to sign up. That's how we know that there were at that time 600,000 people who came out of the shadows to sign up. And then with the last administration and some of his policies, um, there was a fear that signing up would lead to their deportation. So everyone took five steps backwards. Um, and I'm hopeful now with this administration that we're going to see people come back out of the shadows. I hope that this DREAM Act uh, is a standalone so that it can finally be passed, because I think that's the only way that we can start moving the football down, down uh, to the end zone. Um, but we need to get them out of the shadows. We need to give them a path because many of them don't know a Mexico, a Poland, a Guatemala. All they know is the United States. They came here when they were like eight months old, six months old, and have just known this country. And it is simply immoral, in my opinion, to ship them somewhere else that they've never called home simply by but no fault of their own. They happen to be here. In the legislation that has been discussed in the past, and I want Kelly to answer this question, uh, is... My recollection was that they had to come out of the shadows, they had to sign up with the government, and then they they, they had to deal with the issue of there was maybe a, a fine that was going to be involved, there was maybe going back to the country of origin to wait for a while to, to reclaim uh, entry or recharge uh, entry into the United States. And it always concerned me that how, how many people would actually come out of the shadows put their name on a list that the government was providing, it, it seems to me that's a big gamble on the part of people that you're asking things for. And yet that was an integral part of legislation, which, which had some bipartisan support 10 years ago. So what's the answer to, to that question that there, does the, does the fear of the government just automatically end when this legislation is passed in your view, Kelly? So I think there's a lot less fear now that the Trump administration is no longer in power and going to what um, Raymond said, yes, we definitely did see before um, Trump tried to end um, 
DACA, there was a lot of fear and a lot of people weren't signing up if they didn't have relief for deep against deportation because they but were there was fear when Obama was there on. too. There was fear when Obama was there because he was not known as the, the deporter not, in chief. Not to the same extent, because when you were looking at the Obama administration enforcement priorities, they were focused on people who are recent arrivals or focused on people with serious criminal convictions. When you had the Trump administration come into place and revamp their enforcement priorities, everyone was a target. Um, in their definition of people who committed crimes. They didn't distinguish between something like burglary and driving without a license. And then consistently, I saw more long-term permanent residents put in deportation proceedings for criminal infractions that occurred back in the 80s, early 90s. Um, so, to, so Obama, yes, he was the deporter in chief. He wasn't perfect. I'm not saying that by any means. I'm just saying that the fear was different. Um, and with the DREAM Act, there's no requirement, um, there's no touchback requirement um, that the idea is they pay the processing fee for their application. Immigration, USCIS, the agency is basically funded on fees of applications. Um, it's not funded by taxpayer dollars, which is why, you know, when the government shuts down, immigration still keeps cranking everything out. Um, the touchback requirement that you were talking about, that's to actually get a green card right now for someone who entered unlawfully. And this new bill does have a fix for that. Now, does um, that mean you have no. to? You literally have to go home to your country for a while. Is that what the touchback means? You've got to yes. touch the ground so of your origin. Certain origin? so certain people are exempt from that in certain ways. So um, if someone entered the United States after April 1997 and was for here more than 180 days unlawfully, and they depart because it's the departure that triggers the bar they have a three-year ban from coming back to the United States. If someone has remained in the United States unlawfully for more than one year after that, it is a 10-year bar. There's a waiver for that. Um, for the waiver, you need to establish that you have a U.S. citizen or permanent resident, spouse or parents, children don't count. Um, and prior to the Obama administration, the way it played out is someone would petition they would prove up their relationship and then they would have to wait outside of the United States for anywhere between eight months to two years for this waiver to be approved. And then they could come in as a green card holder. Um, if you, I did if have you a come lot into of the country, that. if you come into the country that way, and it's an illegal way, can you still get a social security card? So back in the day, it, they used to give out social security numbers a lot more readily than they do now. I'm not sure what their requirements were. I wasn't, a, I wasn't mm -hmm. practicing immigration law back in the 80s and 90s, so right. I can't tell you. But um, back then, yes, it was possible. Now, the, way, the only way for them, an immigrant, to get a social security number is to be work authorized, um, whether that means they come in um, or they have something like an H-1B visa, or they have a work authorization. For example, a dreamer would have a work permit. Someone who has a pending application for permanent residence would have a work permit. Those people are access, are able to get social security numbers. And if you're not a full-blown permanent resident on the social security card, it does say valid for work authorization with DHS authorization only. Okay. So, I mean, they're marked as restricted. Okay. Thanks very much for, for diving deep into that. Let's let our other guests introduce themselves. Uh, David Cohen. Thanks, Bruce, very much. Uh, great to be here. I'm a 
a Chicago kid. Uh, and since the, the alderman talked about the immigration, our roots, I'm a second generation, uh, odd combination of Russian and Swedish Jews wow. who uh, immigrated to the United States. Um, and my background is over the last 30 plus years, I've uh, been in government and media, started out as a radio talk show host uh, and doing public affairs at a small affiliate up in Northern Illinois radio program. Uh-huh. And I subsequently worked as a press secretary for a member of Congress from Illinois, John Porter, uh, who represented the 10th district. I was with him for 15 years, mm-hmm. uh, then did similar work for the Lieutenant Governor of Illinois, uh, Corinne Wood. I was director of communications for her. Uh, and then uh, mo- more recently uh, was director of public affairs for the Union League Club of Chicago. Okay. Uh, but Josh- delighted to be here and to participate in the conversation. Josh Cantro, let's tell us a little bit about you. You're a cyber security uh, lawyer. That's one of the areas where you practice? Yes, Bruce, it, it is. And um, thanks for having me on again. Uh, I practice in the cybersecurity area and technology areas generally. Uh, I'm also a, uh, I'm a, obviously a Republican and I'm a uh, Louisiana native. I've been in Chicago for the last 25 years of my professional life with a brief um, uh stay in in London where I worked uh, directly for uh, one of our firm's clients. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I enjoy coming on the show. I've got an active uh, Facebook blog. I write in uh, various publications and appear on other shows as well. You are all over the place. And again, your, your, your comments appear on the uh, beyond the beltway fan page with anyone that is a guest on this program certainly is always welcome to uh, offer an essay uh, to that, to share uh, their thoughts and opinions beyond the program uh, with those that join us on Facebook. We have got callers on the line. Let's head to them right now. Uh, David is calling from the great state of Washington, and he uh, has some comments on COVID. Go ahead, Dave. I heard you know what? We're going. You know what? Break. We're going. We're going to a break. Forgive me. I didn't. I, I okay. just as I just as I introduced you, I heard the first strain of our theme song. So uh, let's wait here for the moment for the bumper music to play through, and then we're going to hear from Dave from Washington State. He wants to talk about COVID, and we've got to Kathy from Austin, Texas. She's joining us as well via phone. And anyone else in Texas that wants to share the horror that you have gone through for the last 10 days, we'd like to hear from you. 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dubon. You should form your own opinions when you're presented facts without bias. That's what we call news. Every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, news has a new primetime home. News Nation, without all the talk and without an opinion, so you can make yours. It's not how it used to be, it's how it should be. News Nation, seven nights a week on WGN America. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com because it's your news, your nation. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. What are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. It's been a long time since we've had an adventure in the forest. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. You're right. I should get out. Yeah, the forest is not that far away. Hey, Mom! Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Back. Thanks very much for joining us this evening, and uh, let's go to a phone call. We had David on the phone. Uh, David, go ahead. You're calling from the great state of Washington. Whereabouts in Washington State are you calling from? 
The Inland Empire of the Eastern Side of Washington, Spokane, Washington. Okay, very good. Go ahead with, with your comment. Okay, I was going to hit COVID, but listening to your guests, I had a couple other quick things maybe I wanted to throw out. Sure. Uh, talking about legislation, I hear you guys talking about legislation. Every time I hear legislation, I think of when they always say bipartisan. Yeah. And I think most people in America hopefully are fed up with saying bipartisan when you get one or two people from the opposing party, whether it's a dino or a rhino, to vote for something. I mean, true bipartisanship should require 25 30%. That's kind of my point number one. I agree. Uh, and then well, and when we talk about immigration reform, I say it should never be passed without locking down the borders. And the reason for that is that if you don't do that, you end up with just a rolling problem. You fix it now, to over the next 10, 20 years, you have the same problem repeat itself. You just have to continually repeat yourself. You've got to stop the input, and the only way to do that is to lock down the border. If you look at a map of the border, the southern border, it's amazing how much of a percentage of, of the crossings are coming in the, the areas with no wall, just mysteriously. That's where they come from. Uh, and then... You have to also stop the incentives. You know, when, when you put all these incentives across, whether it's a dreamer incentive, I, I understand the no fault of their own idea, but, you know, when kids have their parents do something illegal, whether it's uh, embezzlement or bank robbery or anything else, those kids get separated from their parents every day across America. They go to foster homes. So the idea that we can't separate kids, and when you, and when you let people know that, hey, if I cross illegally in the country, at least my child can stay because they'll, they come of no fault of their own, that's an incentive to still keep doing the same thing. Kelly, let, let's, let Kelly, let's let Kelly Fennell uh, respond to that because she deals with uh, uh, those, those people all the time. Kelly, your response to uh, our caller. Um, First off, there's no evidence that DACA caused an uptick in an influx at the southern border. And um, I don't remember if it was Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch. I believe it was Human Rights Watch did go and interview young people at the border right around the time that DACA was announced. And many people hadn't even heard of DACA. Um, So there's no concrete evidence that DACA did cause a surge. Um, we do see violence um, causing a surge. Um, there's typically a lull in um, the winter and there's a spike in the summer. Um, from someone who has been at the border and been in the detention centers there, um, specifically in the context of women and children being detained, um, hearing what people are fleeing, I don't care how high you build that wall, I don't care what you do at the border, um, people who fear for their lives and have a choice of either leaving and potentially living or staying and dying are going to flee. Um, No one makes that dangerous trek with a two-year-old because they want some more money. Um, It just, that's, it's not fair to make it that simple. Um, And as far as locking down the border, I I think that that is an excuse. Like when is the border ever going to be 100% secure? Um, If you look at the bill that's proposed right now, there is a section that does cause for a bigger task force to cut down on human trafficking, to target drug traffickers, to introduce more smart technology and drones into policing the border. Um, So I really feel like that's just kind of an excuse that has been used to avoid getting anything concrete done. We haven't had an overhaul or an illegalization since 1986. The last time we had a comprehensive overhaul was under the Clinton administration in 1996, which is what, quite frankly, created the mess that we're in right now. Um, well, right. and Bruce, I was glad as since I was I was working on the Hill when that last comprehensive immigration yep. bill was passed, which did include a significant amnesty for people who had been in the country illegally. 
And, and border security was then and continues to be an issue. What I was going to suggest in terms of the wall uh, debate, if you want to mm-hmm. call it that, yep. I think that there's a significant number of Republicans who are concerned about border security, but who are interested in meaningful border security through some increased technology, more increased in perhaps border patrol, you know, agent levels and that sort of thing. But the wall, I think that there are many conservatives and Republicans will tell you in private, it was a vanity project for Donald Trump. In terms of its actual utility in preventing illegal immigration, it's symbolic more than effective. So I don't. I don't think the border are, patrol actually, would agree with that. Actually, Josh, Bruce, if I could just say say something in response to that, the the I I agree and disagree in part with what Dave just said. Look, the wall is part is a tool, and it can be an effective tool in some of these areas. Uh, we also need drones. We also need e-verify. We we need a lot of other things, but the wall is. If you talk to people who understand and the agents down there, we do need a wall in certain places where it's really easy to cross. Well, we've always had barriers and should have. I mean, nobody suggests we shouldn't have any physical barriers between the U.S. and Mexico. Those have existed since time immemorial. The question is, to what extent and when does you cross the line between actually trying to provide meaningful physical security and just simply making a statement about you know, the strength and beauty of the wall. I think the president was consumed with it because it was a major part of his campaign. I want to go to, I want to go to Ray Lopez and ask the uh, question that uh, in, in this past election, the number of people who voted for Donald Trump who were Hispanic was a larger number than voted for him in 2012. So despite all of the anti-Trump rhetoric by Democrats and within the Hispanic community, more people voted for him than before. Why? Voted for who? For Trump? Voted for Trump. Yeah. We've seen all kinds of bizarre demographic shifts in this last election. I don't think it was easy to say, you know, we had some individuals who were resonating with the law and order um, within the Latino community that yeah. Trump was pushing heavily on um, and willing to turn a blind eye to the immigration issues that was impacting everyone that was coming after them. Um, so I think that you saw that on multiple demographics. But I, if I may just go back, Bruce, to one thing about this wall. 10 seconds wall, because we're running out of time. 10 seconds. I'll make it quick. This wall is offensive. This wall isn't vanity. It's racist because there are more ways that people come here illegally than crossing from Mexico. They don't, they come from Canada. They come on an airplane on a student visa. Nobody is saying taking away student visas. They're only saying stop the Mexicans and that's wrong. Okay. It's racist and it doesn't fix anything. It only gives someone a soundbite to run for their reelection. On that point, we've got to move on. All of our guests will be back for a full hour. And when we talk in the next hour, we're going to be talking about the future of Donald Trump. Are you ready to support him again in a comeback? Don't go away. For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it. Seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. 
Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont back for hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us. So 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number, 1-800-723-8289. And uh, before the break, I asked uh, the audience, who wants to see Donald Trump return for another run for the presidency? And uh, I want to get that reaction, at least uh, from our two Republicans. I think I know what our two Democrats have to say on this, but... uh, uh, I'm going to start with you, Josh, because I'm not so sure what your answer is going to be. Yeah, I'm not so sure what my answer is going to be either, Bruce. <laughs> um, no, seriously, um, I think it's time for uh, we have a lot of great uh, potential candidates in 2024, and I, I'd like to see them emerge. I think that uh, President Trump did some really great things. Um I have been an outspoken critic of his actions since uh, Election Day, however. Uh, having said that, if he ran again, while he wouldn't be my preferred candidate, uh, I'd probably vote for him over uh, just about any Democrat. Uh, although, uh, you know, I'd have to see who the candidate is. But in the past, you have said that you liked uh, uh, Nikki Haley. 
yes, I do like Nikki Haley. She made a big unforced error by sitting down with Tim Alberta and uh, for a series of interviews and thinking that by criticizing the president and uh, bashing Trump a little bit that she could work herself into his good graces and that he would write a nice article about her. What he did and what Tim Alberta always does, he's the chief political correspondent at Politico, is that he took all of those comments and then he still trashed Nikki Haley. So that was not a good move on her part, and I was disappointed to see that. Now, Dave, you've not been a fan of Donald Trump for a long time, so I know you don't want him back again. But look at the uh, the list of people who could challenge him, and uh, who would you put at the top of that list? Well, <clears throat> among the Republican names that have been bandied about, I think just about any of them other than Donald Trump. Let, let me be clear. Donald Trump was uh, a disaster and continues to be, in my judgment, for the Republican Party or whatever is left of the Republican Party. It's, be, it's quite clear that it is now the party of Trump and the policy positions of the Republican Party, to the extent that they exist, there was no platform adopted. Uh, it's whatever President Trump tells people that policies should be. So. I don't believe in the politics or governance of fealty to a single person. Um, I think the party needs to be bigger than that. Overall, you could put me in the camp of uh, Congressman Adam Kinziger, um, who I think very clearly identified the president's patent unfitness to lead in any capacity. Do you but, think he should challenge you, for president? I mean, do, pardon me? do you see him as a challenger for president to enter? I'm talking about who uh, I would I would think that the Republicans would not make the same mistake in 2024 that they did in 2016 and have a field right. of 16 or 17 people running uh, and Donald Trump would never get the would never be able to uh, get the nomination. So my question to you is if how do right. you get this race down to a one-on-one quickly and who would the one be that you think would or should emerge as the principal challenger to Donald Trump's return? You got I got to have a name. If, if you okay well, if you had to give me my dream candidate, which is completely unrealistic, it would be someone like uh, Condoleezza Rice, who brings a wealth of knowledge and expertise and standing on conservative Republican principles and has a distinguished record, but she probably is not willing to entertain such a thing. So it's hard for me to, at this point, I think it's very early. I think the thing the Republican Party needs to decide is, does it want to let Donald Trump hold all the cards? when it comes to the emerging Republican primary field, because he is not going to rule out a bid for the presidency. And if I had to bet today, I'd say he's going to run again in 2024. There's Steve no Bannon has it. suggested that perhaps he should run for Congress and go uh, and try to become uh, the Speaker of the House if the Republicans he regain would, uh, control. I think Donald Trump, would that would be a step backwards in, in uh, seniority and prominence for him. He would never consider such a thing. It's the presidency or nothing. I'm quite certain of that. Would it, would it Bruce, be a stepping just, stone? Yes, go ahead, Josh, and then I want to hear from the Democrats. Um, I, I, look, I wasn't the biggest Donald Trump fan back in 2016, but to say, as David did, that he's been a disaster for the Republican Party is just mm-hmm. a step too far. He figured out how to win the presidency, something that Republicans could, couldn't do. We got three Supreme Court justices out of it and a lot of great policy. So I think that you bank that and you take that and you try to build on that with the emerging candidates. 
But he also decided to riot on the Capitol and attempted to delegitimize a perfectly legitimate election. I am sorry. Josh, I've been been very, very, um, excuse me, I've been very critical of those actions. Okay. And I'm sure you have, but how does someone who does that even get to be considered to run for president again? I don't think any policy, any Supreme Court justice excuses that. And anyone who does so, I'm sorry. I just, I can't stay silent and even entertain that. But but all of the, all of the good stuff happened before that is, is my point. So then he's and already right, said, doing that because of the good stuff he did before. That's, that's, the, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I've been very critical of his post-election day actions. What I'm saying is he did do a lot of good stuff and I like his policies. 90% of them I like. And by the way, building a wall and having physical barriers on our southern border is not racist. We don't have people coming in from Canada through that border. So it's not it's a racist terrible. thing. It's yeah, one of the so tools you that you can do use. Have people coming through the border uh, on Canada. I want to go. I want to not, go. It's not to the extent that we do yeah. in the South. It's like maybe less than 1%. I want to go I'll to Ray Lopez as a, as a Democrat, as a Democrat, um, would, uh, would a Donald Trump on the Republican ticket uh, lead to a, a, another massive turnout by Democrats, uh, Ray? Oh, I think so. I think it, I think it would be the death knell of the Republican party, however you look at it. So why shouldn't they do it? Point, why shouldn't they do it then? I understand that there are some things that the Republicans got out of Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell smiled 19 times during the administration, getting those Supreme Court justices and 200 plus judges on the on the federal bench. I get that. But imagine the commercials that you'd be, that the Democratic Party would be running against Donald Trump round the clock, reminding everyone that despite all of whatever we thought he was crazy for, the topper was trying to destroy this government on January 6th, you will never be able to run again with that as your legacy. As someone who's been in six elections, I don't care how good my term has been before, if I supremely screwed up and tried to shoot my mayor, I would never be allowed to run again. No one would ever take me seriously. And I think if Donald Trump put his ego above his own party, he would destroy that party. And that's why I think they've got to find where their new bench is, you talked about Ken, uh, Kinzinger. You talked about Nikki Haley. I think personally, I think Eric Holcomb from Indiana or Mike DeSantis from Florida might try and make a run for it. It's going to be in your governor's to step up and take the take the baton and run with it. But if he comes back, it'll just solidify I gotta, the Republicans. I want to get your reaction, but I want to clarify something. You've not suggested shooting the mayor. You didn't suggest no. that. I want to clarify well, that. For some, for some people, yeah, might have just, they might have heard government. just a portion yeah. of what you said, Ray. I want to clarify it so yeah. we don't get uh, on the front page of the Tribune tomorrow. Back shortly. For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation, it's your news, your nation. We are the boy band. Your tween made you see. We 
It's painful concert number three. We are the boy band. We're five and nineteen. We are the boy band. Always singing on key. You love your kids enough to take them to see their favorite uh, band. Love them enough to make sure they're buckled up in the back seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. Uh, We'll be on the Beltway and uh, we'll get back to our discussion. But I want to kind of switch gears and uh, give everybody an opportunity to to make a comment if they they care to. And certainly... uh, uh, probably most of the comments might come from uh, listeners uh, and watchers of the program this evening. But obviously, since uh, we were last with you on Monday of last week, uh, Rush Limbaugh passed away. And again, uh, 70 years old, a brilliant career. And uh, I just, on, on, a, on a personal note, uh, I, I knew Rush. I did not know him well. I met him in my capacity as the president of the National Radio Hall of Fame, and I had the opportunity back in 1993 to call him up on the telephone and tell him that he had been inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. And uh, it was uh, it was the first of many sort of emotional reactions and emotional conversations I had with people who I was calling to give news, uh, great, great news of their personal success. And uh, uh, we became acquaintances, again, not, not great friends, but again, acquaintances. He came back uh, two separate occasions to... Uh, make inductions into the Radio Hall of Fame for us uh, and made a donation uh, of some generosity to the Radio Hall of Fame as well. But again, uh, anyone that spends any moment or has spent any moment in broadcasting has got to be able to, regardless of what your politics uh, was or is, uh, it would be impossible for you to, to look at the career and Rush Limbaugh and not say that it is one of the most remarkable careers of all time in, in the media of radio. And we all know that the generations of conservatives, uh, not only as listeners, but again, uh, he, uh, he really uh, beget a whole generation of talk show hosts from all over the country, just about anywhere else you go on the AM dial. Now, uh, in the talk show uh, you know, field, you will find someone that was um, nurtured and, and uh, mentored in some way, uh, at least intellectually mentored, uh, by Rush Limbaugh. Uh, one of the reasons why I think so many Democrats in the mainstream media uh, despised him so much and unfortunately have shared their, uh, their horrible attitudes towards him even in death was because Rush Limbaugh was very effective. He was effective in, in moving uh, votes. He was certainly a very effective in uh, winning control for the Republicans in 1994 of the House of Representatives and again certainly made things close with Donald Trump even though Donald Trump did not win the most recent election. He certainly was an integral part of giving him the, the credibility within the conservative uh, cause uh, back in uh, 2016, and they obviously became uh, friends uh, at, during that period of time. But uh, there was always the ability that, to, I think, skewer the, the liberal media, which uh, was dominant at the beginning of Russia's career back in 1988. It remains uh, dominant, and again, uh, to their... Uh, to my dismay uh, today, even on the three Sunday morning shows that I watch regularly, uh, there wasn't uh, a mention of, of Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Fox News tonight is going to do a special about Rush Limbaugh in his own words at 9 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, but again, uh, uh, the other programs did not even mention the passing 
of one of the most significant political operatives, and I'll use the term operatives, a, a swayer of public opinion, as Rush Limbaugh. And again, it's it's it really it's it's a disgrace and a and a it's it's very upsetting uh, to look at the mainstream media in any degree of respect. And again, I will use today as yet another example that they cannot even, uh, in, in some degree of objectivity, be able to step back from some of the very controversial things that Rush said. A lot of people in America did not like Rush Limbaugh. I know that. But again, it seems to me that the media, is, is their role is to, if they can go beyond their own political uh, you know, bias, uh, they can look at the man and say what a remarkable talent he was and what a remarkable ability he had really to transform almost for two generations now America's uh, conservative uh, viewpoint and on the media. And again, if you look historically at, at uh, where media has been, I mean, before Rush Limbaugh, the only thing close to a conservative voice out there was Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey was the most successful news commentator of all time. He preceded Rush Limbaugh. They overlapped a little bit towards the end of Paul's career, but obviously Rush became a figure relatively early after his uh, launch as a national personality in 1988. And again, uh, certainly he, he, he went well beyond uh, the reach of, of Paul insofar as uh, really focusing on a very strong conservative message. So uh, there will never be another Rush Limbaugh. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, copycats out there, and uh, they, they each bring some degree of talent to uh, to their task every day, and I listen to many of them, but I don't think that any one of them could hold the candle uh, to Rush Limbaugh, and it will be difficult to to find a replacement for that uh, that very valuable time slot. And uh, one of the things about Rush, which I did not read in any of the uh, uh, post-mortems or, or any of the obits about Rush, was that when he decided to do what he did back in 1988 and go from a talk show host in Sacramento, California, uh, to a, a syndicated personality, uh, he owes a lot of that to Ed McLaughlin, who was a former sales manager, sales wizard at ABC Radio, who ultimately ended up in the Radio Hall of Fame as well. And Rush was came back. It was, it was one of the times Rush came back to pay tribute to the man who gave him his start. But... Um, uh, the one thing he did was he, he, he took someone who was on middays from, you know, 10 in the morning. Now, if you know radio, that's that's not a prime time. Uh, you know, prime time in radio is either morning drive or evening drive, and that's where you make, make the most money. So here was some guy coming along that was going to give a syndicated launch, a syndicated program uh, from like 10 o'clock in the morning until either noon or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And so that was very unique. But and also there weren't a lot of people fighting for that time slot. So he took a time slot that was basically a, maybe a grade B time slot in radio and it turned it into just a, a remarkable audience magnet and one that in, made a lot of money for a lot of stations. But he also realized something. You know, at 10 o'clock in the morning and you're listening to AM radio, uh, most of the people that are listening are people in cars. That was not surprising. Most of the people that were listening in cars were probably men. Uh, that was not surprising. And many of the people listening in those cars were salesmen. They were part of the, the great capitalism system, the capitalist system. And so speaking to salesmen and, and men primarily, but women as well, but speaking primarily to men on the road 
during that period, three, three hours every single day. He was able to have, I think, a captive audience. And so he began to fine-tune his conservative principles and articulate those on a daily basis and also brought to it a degree of comedy and, and humor. And I think one of the things that has not been said too much is the, the humor uh, that, uh, that Rush Limbaugh uh, demonstrated on a regular basis. He got sharp. He rolled up the elbows. There was no question about it. His elbows were sharp. His tongue was even sharper uh, when he went after liberals. But again, he was able to uh, help a lot of conservatives who listened to him during the day. He was able to give them ammunition that they would use later at night at dinner tables or at cocktail parties or at golf outings. And he was able to articulate uh, what Rush Limbaugh meant to them and meant to the country. So again, uh, on a personal basis, uh, a great personal loss, but also I think uh, a true, a true, uh, a true radio giant. And I don't say that lightly about anybody, but uh, I want to get uh, I want to get reaction. I don't expect too much reaction from our Democrats today, but I want to get reaction from Josh Cantro on uh, your thoughts and, and important role that Rush Limbaugh played in uh, the party, the Republican Party, and also. Uh, uh, raising the flag for conservatism. Bruce, your comments were really heartfelt and, and well stated, um, and I share, um, I share, I share them as well. The media bias is just so out of whack, and what Rush did is he um, helped to correct that. And you see all of the folks like Hannity and Mark Levin and others who were, um, have come after him, and um, and are helping to slightly correct that media bias. And what Rush did for the conservative movement was just incredible. And I also want to say this from a kind of a unique angle. As you know, I'm a strong pro-Israel advocate. Rush was an incredibly impassioned advocate for the state of Israel. And what he did in articulating pro-Israel principles uh, leaves a special place in my heart. And I know that the prime minister of Israel paid tribute to him recently. Mm-hmm. David Cohn, you're uh, again, a traditional Republican, but uh, for much of his career, Russia would wave the banner for traditional Republicans as well. Sure. Well, Bruce, I, I come to this conversation, not only as a longtime government and political affairs guy, but also as a broadcaster, as you right. know, Um, I was in radio for many years. I come from a family of broadcasters. And so speaking as an old radio guy, um, you can't help but admire uh, the Rush Limbaugh phenomena and what he did. Uh, And and in fact, for those of us who started out their careers in AM radio, I think it's not an overstatement to say that Rush Limbaugh really saved the future of AM radio in the United States. There's no question about that. Uh, you know, I'm reminded that Rush used to uh, say, I think one of his catchphrases was talent on loan from God right. or something like that. Um, and while I think that it is fair game to question the purposes uh, to which he used those gifts and the manner in which he applied that razor sharp wit, and at times it was downright cruel. But the, the fact remains that that notwithstanding, there will probably never be a radio personality of that kind of national uh, stature um, to, on the conservative side. I think it's going to be very hard for anyone to fill those shoes. I agree. Dave, we're out of time at this moment. Back shortly. 
Opinions are everywhere when you watch the news. But what about your opinion? Why can't you just get the facts to decide for yourself? News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, a nightly newscast in primetime that doesn't tell you what to think. Seven nights a week, News Nation will deliver you news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. It's your news, your nation. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back, and I want to go back to you, uh, Josh Cantrell, because uh, one of the challenges of the of the Republican Party now is going to be uh, how they move beyond uh, Donald Trump. And uh, I want to find out from you uh, specifically what kind of things can they do? I mean, they're obviously going to make a case that uh, the Democrats need to be replaced in, in House races all over the United States in 2022, but they're going to have to have some issues. And I'm wondering what do you think those issues are going to be? And is being against Joe Biden going to be enough to uh, get the uh, Republicans back in control of the House? I I don't think just being against Biden is enough. You've got to come forward with a positive agenda similar to what Newt Gingrich so brilliantly figured out in 1994. the way that the Republicans took back the House. So I'm not, I don't know if you call it a contract with America, but you do something like that. But I think a real winning issue and something that can unite Republicans and also show wavering uh, moderates and independents who are kind of in the middle about, you know, the danger of democratic rule is to look at what's happening in a lot of our cities where there's fiscal mismanagement, there are real fiscal crises, and there's crime and there's other problems. And I commend the alderman for what he's doing in Chicago. And I'm not, Chicago gets picked on too much. I'm talking more about Seattle and Portland and some of the places like that. And, you know, just to ask America, is this what you want? Is this what you want? So I think that with the looming fiscal crisis that Democratic-run cities and states are having and are going to have coming out of COVID, but that are really due to years of mismanagement. I think that's an issue that the Republicans should highlight, along with, most importantly, a positive agenda. I want to go to to Ray to talk about uh, uh, COVID-19 and how it is being handled in, in major cities around the United States. I mean, Joe Biden is in charge now. Uh, one of the big concerns is whether or not uh, the CDC is giving one set of directions to teachers and teachers through their unions are hearing something differently. Randy Weingarten was on TV this morning, and she certainly sound, sounded reasonable as a teacher. Uh, to the schools uh, in, in your award, how many of the schools in your ward are open? How many days are they open? And most importantly, uh, how outraged are parents uh, who, who may want more in-class teaching for their students? Well, I think when it comes to COVID and 
testing and vaccinations, we have to remember that this administration's only been around, what, you know, not even 55 days. They inherited a playbook that was just a binder with empty pages on it. So they've really been trying to come up with a strategy nationwide to address how do we save our country from this pandemic. Um, so I give the current administration credit for doubling up on doses, making sure that we can secure enough doses for all Americans, for every, all 300 100 million people in this country. Um, but I think that the rollout is having some difficulties. We've seen snow brought our vaccine distribution to a screeching halt last mm -hmm. week. We see the teachers union are fighting in multiple fronts in multiple cities, Chicago being one of them, trying to get their teachers to be bumped up in the categories getting vaccines. And we're seeing now in some contractual issues as well, where teachers don't want to go to work because they have a loved one at home who may be a high risk category. But we're not seeing that same kind of benefit given to the policemen, firemen and all the other essential workers that are still required to go out and work on a daily basis. Is the public, Ray, is the public turning against teachers in a public relations way? Well, I, I can say that teachers have to be careful. You know, teachers have to understand that while they're saying that they're doing this for the safety of the children, many of those children's parents are essential workers who've had to go out and continue working to keep, keep, to keep dollars coming into the household. They didn't have the luxury of remote working and still getting paid. And as this argument seems to continuously throw out their children, it seems a little less, it seems a little disingenuous for the teachers who are trying to hide behind other people's children um, when their parents are the ones still out there working. In Kelly, my Kelly, neighborhood and across many, you still see schools that are closed. And more importantly, it's not so much that they're closed, but that they're closed and not teaching children consistently via remote learning. The only ones that have been doing it well, uh, in my opinion, are the parochial schools, the Catholic schools in particular, the private schools, who've learned how to live with this and have opened up and have been open since August or September of last year, kind of leading the charge to show how do we evolve? What have they done? What, what, is the, what, what is the lesson to, to be learned from parochial schools? Why are they able to do it and public schools are not? You know, one of the things that I, I, I have remarked on numerous times is that the Catholic schools, private schools made it a, a commitment. You had parents and students had to sign a pledge to ensure that they did not travel unnecessarily, that they monitored their health, that they took temperatures, wore masks, washed their hands. They made them know that there was a, a social contract that they had to enter into in order to still be able to open up and go to schools. We've never asked our public school children or their families to enter into such an agreement. And I think that is where we have failed. We have no expectations of our families participating in public education to meet us halfway to keep them and their students and their teachers and Have staff you brought state. that up to any member of the administration in the city? Oh, it's been it's been brought up numerous times, even on our end. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, the city council uh, in Chicago is not the same governmental unit as the Board of Education. Right. So they are content, despite being the mayor's appointees, to do their own thing. And, and as we saw, we've been on the brink of a second strike you know, as recently as a week ago. Right. Uh, Kelly, within your sphere of, of influence, I would assume that you may have one or two people who are teachers. Um, how do you feel about the, the perception that teachers have, at least in Chicago, 
where the union appears to be keeping them out of school when the public is saying, let's go back to school. I mean, do you have any friends that are teachers? Kelly, you need to unmute. There we go. Um, I do have a cousin who was a teacher in the suburbs. um, And I know that she was scared to go back in person, but that was legitimately out of concern for my aunt and uncle um, who are older and my uncle who does have um, some health conditions. Um, Other than that, I, I don't really have any personal experience with anyone that I know directly. Bruce, could I add something uh, Yes, you may. Bruce, and then I, I'm going to go to Dave. Well, go ahead, Josh uh, first, and then Dave. I, okay, but what I what I don't understand, and in, in Alderman hit on this really well, is you have all these parents who are essential workers, and they're having to go out. You have the police and the firefighters and other unionized public employees who have to be in much more um, hazardous situations than teachers. I'm a parent of three or two current uh, Chicago public school students and one, my daughter is graduate. I don't get it. I don't get how the teachers think that they can just, um, that the public is gonna stay with them much longer on this. The schools have been closed for almost a year now. I'm just not understanding where they're getting their PR advice from. David, go on. Well, I was gonna I. I served earlier as uh, on a suburban uh, board of education, and you know I think I have some some insight into what's going on. I have some family too who are uh, in the education profession. I have a niece who's a special needs teacher in a north suburban school district, and I have a couple of friends who teach in Chicago public schools. Those are radically different mm-hmm. uh, situations. I, I think that in general, teachers want to do what's best for kids, but they're also concerned about their welfare. I think the problem politically. And practically is that as you have the CDC saying, look, we have guidelines that suggest you can safely send kids back to school if you take adequate uh, measures to ensure the safety of all concerned. Mm -hmm. It's going to become increasingly difficult for teachers to argue against the science when there are opportunities to safely return to classroom learning. Um, So I think that the public's tolerance for this is going to be at what point do they think the teachers have uh, gone beyond what is a rational request of what what the public education system uh, has to do in order for education to resume. But to because go back- we are losing. In I, I want to say one last thing. Yeah. If there's anything, if there's anything we know from the educational literature, it's this: is that it, particularly early childhood learning and the early years of instruction are absolutely critical to children's cognition and development. We are robbing children, especially younger children, of those critical experiences. And those are things that can really only be effectively achieved in in-person situations. So we need to figure it out. That's, I and that's it's happening. It's happening at all levels, but it is especially, uh, I think, uh, grave in the, in the black and brown communities. Uh, Absolutely. Bruce. I can add just one other thing to what sure. David just said, too. You know, without a doubt, young children not having in, in-class instruction is going to leave them far behind. Right. Also, most of the talk so far in many cities and states is only... Hello, we're getting a little, we're getting a little freeze, Ray. Go ahead. K through eight. We're, we're getting frozen on that. Uh, not... 
There's no discussion at all. Ray, we're we're getting uh we're getting a freeze on your comment. Sorry, we have high moment. schools yes, that are not returning to school anytime soon. Right. And again, uh, that's 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 a very difficult time. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about high schools because we have not talked about high schools uh, very much at all uh, uh, throughout the year. And also, I want to hear from Ray because he's uh, he's one of the city fathers. Is that uh, we want to hear from him about exactly what's going on with uh, uh, with schools and what's what what's happening to the physical buildings. Uh, my clock seems to be a little screwed up, so uh, we'll be back sometime soon. Don't you should go away. form your own opinions when you're presented facts without bias. That's what we call news. Every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, news has a new primetime home. News Nation, without all the talk and without an opinion, so you can make yours. It's not how it used to be. It's how it should be. News Nation, seven nights a week on WGN America. Find your local channel by going to WGN America.com because it's your news, your nation. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. What are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. It's been a long time since we've had an adventure in the forest. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. You're right. I should get out. Yeah, the forest is not that far away. Hey, Mom! Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, for those along the radio line, my uh, clock went out. My uh, automatic clock went out, so if I uh, went to break a little early or a little bit late, I know I came back late, so we try to bring you all the inside things of what's happening in, in radio, and uh, I'm looking up at our, my screen, and everybody's name is screwed up. This is... <laughs> It is a challenge We're to still do here. this program. We're all still here. That's good. And everybody is, uh, well, Kelly Fennell is in the right place and uh, Ray Lopez. What happens, I guess, is that when you're on uh, Zoom, if you uh, if you mute yourself, uh, your physical picture switches on our, uh, you know, Hollywood Squares uh, box. So uh, we're, we're having a little difficulty. But if you are not hearing this difficulty or seeing this difficult, you just think that I'm wasting my time. Uh, Ray, I want to go back to you um, about schools. COVID-19 has been with us for almost a year now. When the word first hit that schools were going to be altered in some way, what what was being done to the buildings, to prepare the buildings, to clean the buildings, to do everything from an environmental standpoint to the physical schools, because a lot of that stuff seems to be uh, used as an excuse why teachers can't go back now, which is almost a year later. Well, I think, um, Bruce, I'm glad I'm glad you're sitting down and Josh and David, too, because I think that was one of the good things that uh, President Trump uh, <laughs> signed in the CARES Act that ensured that money went to ensure that schools could have the physical do- the dollars necessary to make the physical changes to schools to start in-person learning again. So I know that, for example, CPS, Chicago Public Schools here, you know, they also had their own CARES Act funding. And I think they spent over $120 million on schools 
doing the social distancing squares, air purification, and all those other kind of modifications mm-hmm. to the buildings to ensure that public schools at least had some, some upgrades to their systems that they otherwise would not have been able to uh, fund on their own. Unfortunately, to your point, Bruce, you know that money six, seven months after all of those upgrades, we're still arguing about how to get the kids into the building that we paid for all those upgrades for. Mm-hmm. And what about the the, the idea that uh, uh, that that uh, that the testing and also inoculations could be done at the schools? Is there is well, there or are there aren't there traveling uh, mobile devices in the city of Chicago where uh, somebody can go and get a shot in the arm? Well, you know what I don't understand, Bruce, is that um, I think it's at least in the state, and it might even be national policy, that you have to have a certain amount of vaccinations at certain levels in order to be in, 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 in a school. Mm-hmm. So why we can't incorporate COVID-19 vaccinations in that roster of uh, vaccinations required uh, for students to get everyone up and going again. Josh? Bruce, um, here's what I, I don't get. The, uh, the left and the Democrats say, follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. Well, here, the unanimous, virtually unanimous science says it's safe to go back to school. And we've just heard the alderman discuss in some detail about the $120 million that Chicago got, which hasn't done anything to advance the ball of getting kids back to school. I have two high schoolers in CPS, and it is incredibly frustrating with the, with this remote. They, I, I, I get that early learners, they need to be in school, but so do high school kids. They, we are losing, we're going to lose a generation of kids if we can't figure out how to get them back to school. And to me, the teachers union at this point is just obstructionist. They're not playing a constructive role and I would urge them to do so like other public servants are. And to Josh's point, that's what I was trying to say before my Zoom decided to quit on me before the break, Um, because not just the early learners, but our high school students rely on their sports programs and other things to help jettison them into college, to provide scholarships for children who otherwise may not be be able to fund uh, college career. And they're all being denied that not only last year, but now this year. And if we don't get our act together, some communities may have no other option for funding their college education uh, moving in, moving forward. Ray, do you think the do you think the governor has been aware of the connection between a a, a teenager in 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 any urban area and the role that that athletic scholarships play in their careers because I mean he shut down high school sports a long long time ago. Well clearly he understands the value of high school sports for high schoolers because his daughter was allowed to continue her horse riding uh, sports uh, during this pandemic as part of her high school curriculum. Uh, Meanwhile the, the children in my West Englewood community can't play football in their own school. And, and, and what reason do they give to those students and parents? Science. What? Science. Silence. Science. Science. So you're waiting the for the problem, science. Bruce, is that our governor is an elitist and he's not in touch. 
at all with these common folks. He inherited $3 billion, um, and he's never done anything in his life, really, um, okay. other than live off his inherited wealth. And on that note, a $3 billion, that's, that's not a bad gift when you're a young man. Listen, I want to thank uh, Josh Cantrell for being with us. Uh, he's a cybersecurity expert, attorney, rather. We haven't talked too much about cybersecurity, but thanks very much for joining us tonight. Dave Cohn and Raymond Lopez, Alderman of the 15th Ward, and Kelly thank Fennell, you. immigration lawyer. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks also to Connor McKnight. Thanks. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Evanston, Illinois. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference, now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts.
preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.